Welcome everyone to the No Name Podcast. My name is Ryan Warner, joined by all as always with by Dustin Gaverlo and Dr. Ellie Shockley. What's going on this week, folks? We'll open up a little bit with a, a check-in, and I'll start first. My check-in is uh, coronavirus related. Um, I got my second vaccine on Thursday, and I gotta say it kicked my ass. The first one I had no side effects, and this one I had some pretty uh, unpleasant side effects for the 24 hours following, or more like the the next day, basically. Mostly body aches, but it really sucked. I hadn't been sick in a long time, so it reminded me how bad it's, it sucks to be sick. But I'm feeling good now. We also had a coronavirus close contact, so we're currently technically in quarantine. But hopefully, if no one's sick tomorrow, we'll be out. They've significantly lessened the coronavirus restrictions and quarantine protocol since the last time we were in. And so we should be good. My two kids had a close contact with one of my cousin's kids over Easter, which kind of threw the bells off again, which I thought we were so close to getting out. And now it seems like it's going to happen one more time before we're out. sounds like <laughs> if I'm reading the coronavirus stats, right? The fourth wave is coming. But other than that, it's been, uh, I guess, uh, a busy week with the kids at home, but uh, it went by fast. What about the rest of y'all? How's your week go? Well, my week was fine. Uh, you know, we got, uh, we're, we're closing in on, on D-Day, the legislature. Uh, on my uh, watch list on, on the legislative tracking system, the uh, coveted no hearings this week uh, is showing, which is good wow. news and bad news because it means that most of uh, the lost causes are lost. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, you know, I think that uh, it'll be interesting to see if they actually uh, fulfill their pledge of, of uh, leaving eight days on the schedule. Um because that would put us, I don't believe they will. They've never, in my time, uh, fulfilled that pledge of getting out the day that they thought that they would. Um, tomorrow is day 63. So to, for them to leave on the, leave eight days on the books, they would have to be out of here by five. A Thursday after this. I don't think that's going to happen, but we'll see. Thanks. I was going to actually ask you, when do you think the session will actually end? Like um, you have kind of like a distribution of guesses, like based on different. I would details. say. I would say day 75 would probably be the earliest I would predict them to get out. Um, yeah. And they're really not good about getting out when they want to. I mean, the, their time management skills suck. <laughs> Almost as bad as mine. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, okay, so this past week, I published a column and essentially it was making the argument that the legislature should go for a study 
um, within House Bill 1298, the bill relating to trans student athletes. And so I basically made the argument that these issues are really complicated and this short time crunch is not an appropriate time for making this decision. And I cited some of the considerations that I thought were relevant, like some of the, uh, the expected negative, negative impacts. Um, and I put the argument out there and I had developed that argument by um, trying to keep up with what was going on on this bill and figuring out the best way to defeat it or weaken it, basically do, uh, do something to protect trans youth, actually tangible uh, was my main goal. And the idea of a study just came up because I realized that this is, and I know people go for studies for all kinds of reasons. Like I know it's a strategic kill for some things and it actually ends up being a win for some other things occasionally. Um, but for me, it was more a matter of I could see that it was literally too much information at once, just way too much. You can't like turn over like four core beliefs at one time. Like it's just, and, and the study literally gets you the opportunity to mentally process the information. And that's why I think kind of no matter what high stakes legislation we're talking about, um, I feel like that's a reasonable argument. And it grew out of conversations I had with legislators in both political parties. And I'm, I'm really glad that I'm able to have those conversations because, I mean, it's just really nice to be able to help shape policy in a way that does some damage control. And if what it requires is personal relationships with legislators on both sides of the aisles, then like, I'm all for it. And I'm happy to even just be remotely um, persuasive. It's, it's something that I'm proud to be working on. And I consider myself trying to be useful, I guess. And that's kind of like maybe trying to be a good ally, I suppose is one way to think about it. So that was my past week. And um, now I'm just trying to pay attention to what else is going on in the legislature. Yeah, thanks for that, Ellie. Um, I really liked your article this week. Um, I usually do like them. This was one of my favorites, because I think it. Um, it gave everyone some rhetorical cover. And if they didn't already have the, uh, the wherewithal to provide it themselves, you did it for them, put it in public sphere, let both the opponents and proponents, um, you know, chew on a little bit. And I think it was very well reasoned. So it would give someone that even wants to vote yes for it, it gives them a way to vote no, if they're feeling pressured to do that. And this was one of the biggest kind of public outcry bills, public participation bills uh, this session, as far as the people that came and wrote, provide testimony and just talked about it in the community. So I think you did a really good public service. I wanted to ask you a follow-up what was the kind of reaction you got after the the article was posted both you know i guess the, you don't have to read me the comments but um was it positive did you get some good feedback from the, some of the people you had talked to privately um what about the public and, and just if you could tell us a little bit about what the public reaction would be that'd be great um it did get some um just subtle not very detailed um supportive reaction from some of the people who had participated in the conversations with me. So yeah, some kind of vague positive feedback, but not a whole lot of time for a lot of exchanges where nothing has to be said, if that makes sense. So like, 
uh, not a whole lot of time saying good job to each other when we're just so overwhelmed and to begin with, I guess. Um, but um, in terms of public reaction, well, it's interesting. I feel like a lot of my friends didn't read it. And I feel, I think a lot of my friends didn't feel like they had anything to learn from it. I think they think that they already know all the arguments um, or I, I don't know, maybe people aren't as interested in my kind of meet people where they're at tone and they want me to only talk to progressives or something. Um, so sometimes my columns sort of fall flat with my own friends. And this is one of those times. And sometimes my friends drive other people reading it. But I have the impression that it is read among a sort of readership that um, I, I, I know the crowd that did read it and did appreciate it. Um, so it's kind of weird. It's some columns have like definitely my different columns have different constituencies, if that makes sense. It's, there's definitely patterns in terms of who responds to them, shares them, find them, finds them interesting or thinks that they already know it all and they have nothing to learn. So they don't bother reading them. Yeah, well, um, that's interesting uh, breakdown of how you, how your your articles, uh, the vectors your articles travel, um, depending on the topic. And I guess for the people that think they already know it all, um, I think what what is helpful for what um, even if they knew everything that you were saying is helpful to just um, imagine someone that doesn't know that. So just empathize with the other side, and um, just empathize with the job of the legislature legislatures in general. Um, you know, I've been participating more than I ever had previously this session, and I'm glad to be not participating anymore. Um, There's some good and bad stuff, but uh, it was a time suck, totally. Uh, but what I found is that it's such an overwhelming amount of work for folks that are not in their prime. <laughs> no offense to the legislature, but they're in, they're in, the, they're in their golden years of, you know, the, the end of their prime, let's say the decline of their prime and uh, to, to keep up just the mental and physical stamina of the schedule they keep and, uh, and, and the importance of some of the stuff that comes up and the, and the time they get or they don't get to spend with bills is, is crazy to, to think that this is our process. Um, lots of things slip through the cracks and we've learned, you know, that on some other topics as well. And uh, so uh, I like, you know, I, I don't know if I already knew it all or not, but I, it was nice to know that you were thinking about them as people and not just about as a, um, someone to persuade. Like, this is a hard job and this is a complicated subject. Why don't we slow down just a little bit? Cause you, you guys have such a crazy schedule. And I think almost anyone can get behind that because we've all been in those situations where there's something to do and we're not exactly sure we know the right answer, but we're forced to make a decision. And, uh, if there's a way we can push back on that, I'm in favor of that and all across the board. And um, with that, I noticed uh, Norton has joined us. How are you doing, Norton? We're just in the check-in period of the of this uh, today's call. Yeah, um, I'm just listening. Um, yeah, this whole legislative session just has made me feel like uh, all these people are overwhelmed are all too old to be doing, making the decisions they're making. And they're not making decisions for the young people of North Dakota. And um, it, it really is, a, you know, I, I, everything they're doing about stand your ground, everything they're doing about uh, voter suppression, everything they're doing about um, abortion issues and defunding NDSU and all of these issues are completely, built into old white guys. And it's just tragic 
for North Dakota. Yeah, I saw that, Stan, your, your, your ground law earlier. And was thinking about uh, testifying against it, but uh, just too many other things came up. But yeah, it's. Um, I think when when we're when we're all done with the session, we can maybe have take an episode or more to reflect on everything, how things have changed, or maybe stay the same to an, to an extent. Um, because I guess my outsider pur purview is that um, there's too much to keep track of. And just for your own mental sanity, you have to keep a very slim sliver of attention on certain things. And then the rest, you just got to kind of not even follow because it um, takes a lot of bandwidth. And especially when you're in a position of not necessarily having any ability to change the outcome or the narrative, it's better better off that you don't know what's happening almost. So <laughs> I know at some point I was trying, I did read all the law, all, all the bills that came up and uh, that was too much. And I think I'll pick and choose next session uh, my attention level because it's it's overwhelming, but not in a, a good way, in a bad way. I want to spend some time now, um, you know, thinking about how we go forward after the session. The session has taken a lot of um, all the air out of the room uh, for this group, or at least taken up a lot of our attention. But I, I want to spend a little bit of time thinking about things we've seen in the session that lead us to believe per perhaps there's a way to bring people uh, together, unite across ideological lines. Um, Dustin and I specifically have had the experience of having some strange bedfellows to try to um, stand up against what we think to be a bailout to oil and gas and coal. And it's been a fun experiment just uh, for taking people that normally wouldn't necessarily agree, but kind of working together in an ad hoc um, way to defeat something and just kind of how that emerges organically and um, people just kind of picking up uh, picking up the slack where they have the ability and the time to do so and things just kind of coming together it's been fun it's been um, the way I would like to see things happen on a grand, grander scale and just um, want to want to ask the group an open question how many opportunities you see for that going forward after the session and then I want to give a little time to Dustin to talk about um, one of his ideas to bring people together, which I think is a very interesting way to frame taxation and government and the role of government. Um, and the reason I say it's interesting is because one of the, one of the things that interesting things that happened this session is that after our little group got together and started talking, we were able to interest some Democrats um, in not spending money. <laughs> which uh, typically they'll, they green light lots of spending, you know, they want to spend government money. And um, as someone that typically does end up voting Democrat, I mean, usually I'm in favor of spending um, for this or that. I guess my one criteria is that it goes to everyone or it's an equal expenditure that helps everyone or, you know, affects everyone equally. And um, Sometimes that's difficult to effectuate. And uh, I think Dustin has an interesting way to reframe the, the argument that I wanna give him some time to explain for the group here. But for before we get there, um, just some general thoughts on what you've seen this session that maybe gives you hope going forward beyond the session for this group uh, as we kind of continue our mission to help people connect and participate in the process in a way that um, doesn't include becoming a Democrat or Republican, but just includes things they're passionate about and they have energy for. Does that prompt and uh, move, any, move anyone to speak? 
I, I wanted to uh, tell Gustin, Dustin that I uh, I was really surprised. I, I find that Becker program incredibly awful. I, as a as any kind of person who cares about progressive politics, I, I find him so despicable. And that you were you and he agree on the fact that there it's a corporate bailout for the coal industry. I thought was kind of interesting. So, lots to you for jumping into that, you know, and and possibly he's to your estimation a good guy, but everything about him just for me is just ugh, he's he's as bad as uh, you know as Cruz or any of these other. I guess I'd call them political terrorists. Well, you know, I've, I've known Rick since I think about 09, several years before he got into the legislature. And um, uh, so I've known him before he had higher aspirations. And so I think that the, the trick that I can use is that, um, you know, I, I know where he was then on the political spectrum and that and that is where he was before he started trying to create a big tent that includes the the uh, Trump crowd, um, which which has, I believe, diluted a lot of his message. And um, and so I can kind of reel him back in a little bit to, to where he used to be and, uh, uh, you know, get things back on track as far as the discussion. Um, you know, like I, I, in you know, I had this conversation on on Rob Port's uh, Facebook page because Rob's been after Rick quite a bit lately, and I was trying to explain that, you know, the issue is that by ex by trying to expand the uh, reach of his audience and and trying to have a larger audience. He had he embraced whether he wanted to or not, or just got caught up in the moment type of thing. Um, he had to uh, uh, grab on the things that aren't necessarily in that genuine libertarian sphere. And while that will increase the number of people that like you, it it also dilutes what you have to say. And you know. When you want to be governor, I suppose you have to do that sometimes. But uh, uh, you know, overall, uh, that that I believe is is where the issue is has really manifest is is that desire to have a broader audience and and not just do what you do and and be fine with the the audience that you attract naturally. You know, it's like I I always call my my constituency the fourteen percenters, and that goes back to the the 14% of Republicans that were not happy with John Hoven back when he was governor. Uh, I don't try to uh, claim that my constituency is any more than that. That's probably the outer limit of my constituency. <laughs> but, um, you know, it, you, you have to just stick to what you know and, and stick to what makes sense logically rather than trying to pander to one group or another because 
any group that is attracted to that pandering, you will lose just as quickly as you got them. So that's, that's kind of my view on that whole situation. That makes a lot of sense. Um, Ryan, I've been thinking about your question about the legislative session, and I feel like two very opposing feelings. Um, on the one hand, I do think things are getting worse. I, I think that legislative session is getting more chaotic, and I don't know if without the pandemic, like, like we don't have the, we're not living in the alternate universe where the pandemic didn't happen. So I don't know what we were bound for inherently, but um, it's, so it's hard to say whether we'll rebound and things will settle down a bit as the, we recover from the pandemic, or if it's just, it just, I, I'm not sure, but I'm nervous about what it says about the future. Um, I think that the chaos makes it difficult to fight effectively, to fight against bad legislation. Um, and being on the defensive is necessary when fascism is knocking at your front door. Um, and so that those things concern me. But at the same time, I feel like every single session, I learn so much more and stuff starts to make so much more sense to me that I feel empowered by my growing understanding. and understanding how to allocate resources well for the cause and that um, if things are getting, especially, but not only if things are getting worse, I'm finding more ways to be effective and I can bring other people along with me and we can be effective together. And I, I don't, you know, I don't know what else I should be doing as authoritarianism, um, you know, starts to soak up our world. I think that this is what is supposed to happen. Uh, so people being vigilant and fighting and trying to be as effective as possible, even when things are getting worse. So I just, I don't know, it gives me something to, to aim for. It like kind of sets a compass for me, if that makes sense. And I will be ready um, again in two years, but I'll be tired. <laughs> yeah, for I sure. Think, I think, uh... What what scares me about North Dakota politics is um, they're um, so so much part of Trumpism in that you know the the very fact that there was a you know a unanimous support for eliminating the mask mandate when everybody knew that masking actually mitigates the COVID uh, problem. And the fact that now it's like a badge of honor for them to make sure that no one in Congress or in our, in our legislature wears a mask going forward. So it's almost like they're just wanting to thumb their nose at any kind of logical thinking. And, that, and like you say, Ellie, it, it feels so authoritarian, it feels so unbelievably, um, I mean, I, I I know how Jews felt when Hitler rose to, I mean, this is how I feel. I just feel like we're, we're being further and further shunted into a corner and uh, authoritarians are winning every single day. And uh, that just scares the crap out of me. 
Yeah, for sure. Norton, I, I, I want to hear more also from Ellie about, I guess, the, the troubling aspects that she's witnessed, I think, especially as this relates to what what potential the pandemic is having on our perception of, of things. Because um, I know for me, it's hard to say. I, I, I have what I read. I have uh, what I the people that I talk to. And then I have a very limited ex- experience out in the world. And um, it's easy to find things that kind of uh, reaffirm your your pre-existing viewpoint. And so if, if I wanted to look for lots of bad things, I could find them. And if I wanted to look for good things, you can also find those. And so <laughs> I don't want to do either of those things. I would just like to know what's happening. And it seems really hard to right now, just with the way things are, things are half shut down. People are still scared. Um, people are unable to talk to each other. I mean, I, I continue to have this feeling where I, I will really hate someone um, abstractly. And then when I in the same room with them, I'm like, actually, this person's okay, even though I totally disagree with you. I, you know, just I, maybe I'm a softy, but I, once I'm I, once I interact with them in person, I'm much more friendly in my, in my mind. The thoughts that I'm having are much more friendly. Um, but I don't know what, what the pandemic is doing to our entire, you know, sociability uh, hierarchy of uh, how we make decisions and and create friends and enemies and. Um, you know, and the mask mandate, I, I don't know what, the, what that, what that's about, you know, other than freedom. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's confusing to me because, uh, you know, I try to, again, try to figure out what's actually happening and it seems like masks help. You know, I, I went to a funeral this week, early in the week, and, um, it was a packed house. There was no social distancing and, uh, mask wearing was at like five to 10%, I'd say of the, of the crowd. Jesus crap. Yeah. It was crazy. I was like, guys excuse me uh you know uh and then and then the the preacher or not the preacher the pastor lady came in and uh she's like uh okay we're gonna sing the song if you want to sing put your mask on and then you know they had people that were leading the song you know the person that sings in the back and then the person that sings in front no one put their mask on the thing like they were just like Boop. they said it and then no one listened to it and i was just like you know my, my wife keeps up much more you know the daily totals and the testing and all the stuff and so I'm always getting secondhand knowledge of what's happening objectively, quote unquote. And uh, I was like, this doesn't seem good. But I mean, I, it's weird when you're in a, when you in a in a room with a bunch of people that think one way and you're like the one or, you know, the minority that's thinking the other way. And you're just like uh, you start to question yourself like, huh, everyone else seems to be fine. Maybe they all got vaccinated already. I don't know. Um, but it was just it's a mind bender. We, we have we have an immediate correlation between the masks and the rise in COVID rates. I mean, it's, it's a, as direct a correlation as you could possibly get to. And yet you have, again, this is Becker and his crowd seem to just make a delight in, uh, in thumbing their nose at any kind of scientific um, reality of what this COVID is about. So because can of I, him, can I, can I share yeah. a slightly different perspective as someone who's um, been involved in some clinical research and um, did, did some research in public health type topics, I do see it a little differently. It's people like COVID fatigue or pandemic fatigue, because this it would happen with other pandemics, like is real. And, you know, I, I'm not going to speak for people in other states because they have different circumstances, but the death rate in North Dakota, like, I mean, death almost stopped 
and they're still extremely low. And I think that people are, because, because the vulnerable people got vaccinated, that's basically why the deaths almost stopped. And it was such a shift in circumstances. And now people who want vaccines can get them. And I just think that from public health, like behavioral, like behavioral aspects of public health, from that perspective, it's predictable and not even that political that it's hard to convince people to behave well in that circumstance. Like it's, it was really hard to get people to stop giving each other HIV. Like this is really hard. Behavior change is really hard. And I think um, a little maybe, I think North Dakotans gave up too early. They should have played it cool much longer. But at this point, like the fatigue, it's understandable because what experts said a year ago is that we need to socially distance for a year. So this was supposed to be when it was supposed to be ending, um, right. according to the best guesses. And I know we never really know, but I don't think everyone is a complete idiot. I think humans are really bad at navigating these situations. And 12 months out where vaccines are available and deaths have plummeted locally, it's really hard to get people to comply. And I think maybe when we meet people where they're at, we can do a better job of shaping their behavior. And also, so maybe right now, it's really like through word of mouth, help all your friends and neighbors and relatives get vaccinated if they want to. Just, you know, keep helping with the vaccinations. But like the politicization of it, I think can be a distraction and misses out on the fact that humans are like this even when Trump wasn't around or Trump wasn't playing this role in our politics. Right. That's a, that's a great point, Ellie. Um, and, you know, being, being in that church with all the people that are unmasked, I mean, I think at this point I'm over it. I'm just, I'm just shrugging. I'm just like, okay, what are you going to do? What you're going to do? And I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And we'll just see what happens, I guess, you know, at this point, you, you, you know, it's always, it's already been a year of, of this behavior change we're trying to get people to go into. And um, whether it's that you, you kind of uh, understand the, the frustration of wearing a mask or just changing anything, you know, really being told to do something different is a big no, no. Uh, as you become an adult or, you know, even for children, it's, it's a big no, no, they don't like that stuff. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm just, I, it's mostly just shrugging at this point. <laughs> you know, if, if I was the vul- if I was part of the vulnerable population and I felt threatened in those situations, like physically for, for my health, I think it would be different, but I don't, I'm, I'm just like, you know, it, it was me, my brother and my dad were masked and it was like pretty much no one else was maybe uh, in this giant church. And then um, we're just kind of like, man, what are we going to do? You, you can't tell everyone to put a mask on. But um, like you said, I mean, what's, how do you, how do you nudge behavior change? At some points, direct confrontation is helpful. At some point, it's not. If you can just settle for a vaccination, I think getting people to vaccinate is important. And um, this is where the right wing, um, the Republican Party has uh, damaged our health process. Because you're right, Allie. People will do what they normally do, but when you bring in a factor of people saying, I'm a staunch Republican, so I'm not going to wear a mask, you know what I'm saying? They're they're not doing it because the, the, the science says one way or another. They're doing it because they want to own the libs. They don't like, uh, you know, sometimes. oh, the liberals, the liberals are wearing masks. That's true. But also, it's a class thing. Like, 
it's a, it's, and it's something that it's like an elephant in the room. People don't want to talk about, including on the left. So like there, there are a lot of people who are non-compliant with all this masking stuff who are just, um, like working poor, like the, the working poor, like they just don't comply as much. And a lot of it has to do with a lack of trust in institutions, which is something that I've published on. So I do know a little bit about this. Um, and I think that complicates the picture. And I, yes, there's a bunch of people who, if Trump, this is, this is something I actually say, because I feel, I still feel anger about this. If Trump had actually, uh, been a good leader during the pandemic, like branded masks and shit. Like so many people would have lived. Like it, 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 we didn't need to have all these deaths. All he had to do was make masking cool for his weird followers. So, I mean, that, that I'm very aware of that. But there, there are people who would have swung either way. But there's a lot of people who are just like, nah, I'm not doing that. And they ha- it's from a poor relationship with the state. Or, or like any public sector entity, like basically people who have bad experiences with, with institutions sort of generalize that to other institutional contexts and situations, and then they are less compliant. And it's so party has definitely wrecked our country, but we also have a problem of distrust in institutions, and it is uh, class correlated. And this is how people people who tend to be very uh, follow the authorities, this is how they showed their anti-authoritarian uh, anarchist side because they, they uh, and, and part of that is the owning the libs because the libs are the, you know, big government people and, and that, that, you know, want to put all these rules on them. And, you know, it's like, what uh, you know, 60 years ago, it was the, the conservatives and Republicans that wanted to put rules on people. Now it's flipped. And so you've got the current breed of people who, if you tend to be anti-authoritarian, you're going to be a Republican now. That's just the way things have flipped. Well, you're, you're going to be a, a left or a right. You're going to be far left or far left, right, perhaps. Yeah. You're not going to be a Democrat. Um, I think the Democrats... <laughs> I moved more more authoritarian leaning as well. And I, well, the other thing with the pandemic we got to remember is that you can do a lot of stupid stuff and be fine. Nothing happens. Or or you can do lots of stupid stuff and you never see the effect of what your stupid stuff has, has done to other people. So, it's, you know, it's not like you walk out with a mask one time and three people that you know die. It's like you walk out and nothing happens and then you're like, well, I guess that's not important. So if you don't see the effects of your behavior, it's hard to change them. Um, mm-hmm. So it's everything's so diffuse that, um, you know, and, and it's so random how people get sick, certain people get sick um, on a very small minor exposure and other people will be in, you know, in close contact for two hours and nothing happens. And uh, it's just not the one to one correlation between this behavior and this um, effect. It's um, it's much more diffuse. So you're going to have lots of people that um, do like to break the rules and then they break them and there's no consequence. And they're just like, OK, well, I proved my point, you know. Um, I want to, uh, let's see, we got about 25 minutes. Let's, let's switch gears quite a bit. Uh, and Dustin and I were texting kind of off, off camera here, um, about a week or so ago. And, uh, I want to give you some time, Dustin, to kind of unfurl your idea here. I'm going to start with what you texted me. Cause I think it's an interesting way to, to frame it. And then I'll let you kind of explain. I might have some follow-up questions. Uh, maybe the rest of the group uh, does as well, but 
you wrote, the only way to stop the flow to the top is to stop the flow to the bottom. From the bottom. From the bottom yeah. to the bottom. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so this is my theory on tech theory, uh, which is, you know, based on, you know, I'm a flat taxer. I think that everybody uh, uh, on the dollars that you are taxed, everybody should pay the same percentage. Now, I do not think that every dollar should be taxed. I think that everybody should have the exact same exemption. In an ideal world, random, big, round numbers, uh, the first $50,000 for single people and the first $100,000 for married people, maybe have another you know, add-on per kid or something, uh, does not get taxed. And then all the loopholes, all the write-offs, all the, the machinations that that rich people that can afford CPAs and, and tax lawyers, you know, and spend a million dollars to get out of paying $10 million. Uh, all of those things go away. And, you know, in, in the spectrum that we were talking about related to things like corporate welfare, um, the only way that we're going to ever be able to, to change, uh, the the viewpoint that the folks at the, the corporations at the top uh, deserve corporate welfare uh, subsidies, handouts, bailouts, etc., is if it is the people at the top that are paying for it by the way that we take the people at the bottom out of the tax picture altogether, because if, if as long as the people, as long as the system is allowed to spread the cost out as, as far and wide as it does, it minimizes each person's uh, own input into that bailout. But if it is actually the, the people at the top who can no longer get out of paying their share because we've created a flat system where we're no longer punishing the fact that you make more income. It's just, that's what we tax and there's no way to get out of it. Then they will be the ones that fight against the bailouts and subsidies and the corporate welfare, and they've got the money to do it. So if you want the, to, to change public policy and, and eliminate the, the features of public policy that incentivize money flowing upward in the system, you have to st stop taking money from the bottom. And, and to do that, you have to exempt everybody at the bottom. And you know the people at the top still get that same exemption. The first $50,000 is tax-free, regardless of whether you make $50,000 or $50 million. And then every dollar is taxed exactly the same, regardless of how you made it. Uh, and I would apply that towards cap gains and everything, dividends, all that. Income is income, no matter how you got it, passive or actively. And by doing that, you create a scenario where the people with the money are the ones that are opposed to the bailouts now. Whereas as, we, as the system is today, it's the people at the bottom who don't actually contribute a, a large portion to those bailouts who care the most. Uh, you know, if you look at the breakdown of, of who pays federal income tax, 
the top 1%, I believe, is, is they pay 19% of the total tax. Uh, the top 10% pay 50% uh, of the total tax. And the top 50% pay 96% of the total tax. Uh, already, the way that the system is set up, uh, you know, for the most part, lower incomes don't pay a lot. Uh, but the there's still a lot of you know that we have withholding issues and all that kind of stuff. And and you you would actually the the amount of of economic growth that you would see if the people at the bottom did not lose that money every paycheck. And could spend it on an ongoing basis rather than an, on a one-time basis when they get their refund for giving the federal government a tech or an interest-free loan for a year. Uh, it would actually you create more steady economic growth rather than seasonal economic growth. So our entire structure, the way it is, uh, we we tax people at the bottom in order to justify taxing people at the top even more. And, and that's a faulty system because if we just tax everybody at the same rate and gave everybody the same exemption and nobody has any loopholes or tricks up their sleeves, uh, you're actually gonna have a more fair system that is less inclined to, uh, to, to be used in favor of one class or another because when you put the people who are in power at the, uh, it, 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 when you hit the people who are in charge of the system the most under the system, they will take ownership of that system and fix it. Otherwise, they just got to pay the bill themselves. And, and it's, you know, the folks at the top circulating money amongst themselves. And then it doesn't really impact people at the bottom. But uh, yeah, that, that's pretty much my, my theory on life. Well, that's well, entirely too rational. For Washington D.C. <laughs> well, I'd say it's pretty. It's pretty uh, optimistic viewpoint of rich people too. So you're saying that if one subset of rich people gets this um, bailout, let's say it's oil and gas for our discussion, the other rich people would would uh, band together and be like, "Hey, hey, this is um, unfair to us, us other rich people." So you think the rich people would kind of, you know, um, they would control yes. their own? Yeah. Yeah, I think they, instead, of, I, instead of what they do now, which is they all kind of band together and just run everything. Right. Because the because right now they band together to get out of pain. Right. But if there's no longer a way for them to get out of pain, then there's nothing for them to band together to do. And, and they will be more interested in fairness amongst their own because they can't get out of it now. It, but because right now the system allows Lots of people to get out of it. People to, they can afford it <laughs> to get out of it if they so choose. There's no incentive for them to oppose those things. Right. And so this this creates the incentive by making it cost them more on a on a dollar for dollar basis because it's more clear who's paying the bill. That doesn't yeah, live have in a such a dream question. world. Wait, tonight, can I okay? So first <laughs> Before I can launch into my question, can you remind me what was the number of the bill that uh, Dustin that you discussed with Becker on his show? Oh, sorry, the one where he admitted to voting wrong. Uh, fourteen twelve. Okay, fourteen twelve. All right. So House Bill fourteen twelve is that kind of an example of like 
the current structure is the people being taxed are the ones getting the kickback. So at least it's leaving most of we, the people out of it, but yep. the, the bill aimed to actually nullify that and make it reliant on the people more proportionally more. Yes. Yes. 1412 does the exact opposite of, of what my theory would call for. What what I would say, Dustin, is that I think there is broad agreement amongst almost everybody that a flat tax makes a hell of a lot of sense. Number one, doing taxes sucks. The fact that you have to pay another person to do your taxes, or in some instances, you should pay another person to do their taxes because then you can save money on paying taxes, is all slanted for rich people to get away get away from paying their taxes. And then the other thing is, they already have all your information. You, they should be just telling you what your tax is. They're, the government should be telling you what your taxes. You know, what, they should send you a bill if they if you have to pay taxes. Just send them, send me a bill. Why do I have to you know go to TurboTax or H and R Block or some of this other crap and type in my own numbers and then pay them sixty bucks to tell me that the government owes me a thousand dollars? It's dumb. It's so dumb um, that I think people would just to get away from all that crap. It, it would be awesome if like I, I'm thinking back to Steve Forbes's thing where you can your whole tax return is like a postcard or something. Uh, yeah, that sounds awesome. Uh, you know, the, the accountants in our uh, audience perhaps will have a different viewpoints, but um, yeah, I mean, I think this would be a great way to start thinking beyond Democrats and Republicans and be like, doesn't everyone hate doing their taxes? Aren't taxes dumb? Just the entire bureaucracy of filling out those forms and, you know, all the paperwork you got to uh, complete every year. And then you got to pay somebody to do this pat and that part. And, um, you know, as we've done, uh, as I've gotten to the small business side, there's all the business taxes we got to pay all the time too. And it's just the, the paperwork requirements are just absurd. If there was, you know, it's, it's not that I don't want to pay the taxes. I just don't want to spend so much time filling out paperwork to pay the taxes. If there was a way you could just remove the paperwork and and the, the busy work and the bureaucracy behind all this, um, I think people would just stand up and cheer for that. I, I really do. It's so simple and so common sense that why why can't we just come together and be like, yeah, this is pretty dumb. Why, why I don't know why we do this. Let's just change it. Dustin? It, it, it's because that th there's this belief by uh, progressives that our current tax code is progressive and it's not. It, it really is not. It, it's only progressive in the fact that the more money you have, the more you can get out of paying what you owe. That's the only progressiveness of it. So, Dustin, wasn't Ross Perot's, um, one of his planks was uh, flat tax when yes. he ran? Yeah. Yep. Ross Perot and Steve Forbes yeah. both, both had that thing. And here's the other funny thing about, you know, the, the 2017 tax bill. Um, that that they passed that that was passed in in Trump's first year, you know they touted, you know they they shrunk down for for those who this year was the first year that I filed electronically, because when I was putting together my I, I I've done paper until last year and and I started doing it and I I got like seventeen pages like in 2017 the the tax code and the forms were supposed to be simplified they shrunk down the 1040 to be a half a page front and back. Well, what they didn't tell people is that in order to do that, they created schedules one through six. So you actually have more pieces of paper if you file 
on paper than he ever did before. Like in, in like 2016, my tax return with all my self-employment stuff was four pages long. Uh, before I decided to actually switch to electronic this year, I was already up to 17 pages on my paper filing. And I, I don't have enough income to justify a 17 page <laughs> tax return. Actually for 2020, uh, I didn't have any taxable income because of the way things are set up, but it was the longest tax filing that I've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, it, makes it makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, and then when to I, report. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Pages. Yeah. And and you know, just because there's money moving around so many different places, uh, you know, the you know, and the Obamacare stuff, it, the, the Obamacare forms went from being one form to being one form that you then put onto a third form and, and then over it's like it's like the old uh, choose your own adventure uh, uh, novels in school. That's what our, our tax filing system has become. There's no argument. And I think from most uh, laymen, there's not any argument for what you're saying, but it's just such a, a sunk rigged system that it, right. it's just impossible for people to see clarity to move past it. And that's why, you know, our two-party system has has broken us uh, as a country of people that make rational decisions based on the populace. We, we make decisions based on, I don't even know what it's based on anymore. It, it, right. It's all so nonsensical that People just don't even they don't even know what they're thinking anymore. They just know that they hate what the Democrats say and the Democrats hate what the Republicans say. So they just will constantly, um, you know, and you're, you're right. It, it's when you look at our taxation, granted, there's so much waste and so much crap of what. So people don't want to pay taxes because they don't know what they're getting paid, what they're paying for. They they have no idea what they're actually paying for. We've got a Pentagon budget that people have no idea what that budget covers, you know. And if they tried to figure it out, it would be a thousand and some pages of stuff that nobody would ever dig into. So we have no idea how that budget is is brought down to a level of me, Norton Lovell, saying, okay, I'm paying this amount of taxes and I'm taking care of this airplane or I'm taking care of this um, general that wants to have a 20-button phone in his office. So <laughs> all those things are are totally obscure to anybody. So Pentagon spending, which is a big part of it, and I agree, our health care and our um, wealth and uh, Social Security and all these other things are a huge piece of it, too. But if we as a country would demand that we see exactly what we're paying for, I want to pay for education. I want to pay more for my tax dollar that goes into public education. So I'm willing to spend a lot more money of my taxes to for public education. I'm willing to spend a whole bunch of money if I have it for health care, 
And so those are all things I'm willing to spend my tax dollars for. But I'm not willing to spend my tax dollars for some ungodly who knows what the hell's going on with my new airplane that's going to, you know, float five feet off the ground or something like that. So, so it's two words, Norton. Two words, Norton. Space Force. Space Force. Well, it's all bullshit it, because as far as I'm concerned, I have no idea what that money goes for and why. And why are we spending money for um, wars that we start, that we basically instigate, and we basically are trying to protect other people's oil fields? This is all right. money that and doesn't Norton, make sense. To Norton, me. as a Norton, as a public sector employee, I wish that I could just take referenda from the people like like as a state employee i'm just like yes like i want to work on what the people need so you know if it's education like that you know it's i wish we really need to construct a system where the people can ask for and pay for the government that they want and know that there are there are state employees who are very resistant to change because they've maybe been there too long, but there's lots of young, bright minds out there who, you know, want to serve publicly, you know, as, you know, the, <laughs> the bureaucrats people think they loathe, but maybe they don't really. Um, I, I think a lot of us really do take public interest very seriously. And so just know that like, we got to get um, government workers on board and they're ordinary people too. And yeah, they want to, I want to do this. I feel like my, uh, my coworkers are very uh, public oriented in their priorities, the good ones. So we need to line up what actually government spends its time doing with what the people want it to be doing. Yeah, you amen know, to that, Ellie. This has long been a dream of conservatives to, to put on the tax form a, a box that says, okay, here, like 40% of your dollars are non discretionary and we're going to spend them on what the law says we have to. But the other 60%, you divide that up into whatever percentages you want. And, you know, you'll give them education, we'll give them uh, health care, we'll give them tourism, we'll give them Department of Commerce, you know, all these different things and, and let people vote with their dollars. And, and this is actually, you know, this is the whole notion behind school vouchers, in fact, is the whole voting with your dollars idea. And, you know, again, it's, it, I, I do believe that in the future, there, there will be a time where the left and the right join up and realize that we need flat taxes and we need people to have a say in how their dollars are actually spent. And then the legislature cannot go beyond those dollars that are here. I mean, we, we check off on our, our, our uh, tax forms, how much we want to go to the the uh, presidential fund or the, the, in North Dakota, we have the wildlife fund and, and the recreation fund and blah, blah, blah. And right now those, those just come out of your refund and your, that's just extra money that you're giving the government. Uh, ideally uh, there would be a way to, you know, divide it over your top four, uh, you know, uh, causes and then the legislature only has that money to spend. Okay, so uh, subsidies to energy companies. Okay, we only have $5 to work with, guys. Where do we want to send it? 
<laughs> I love it, Dustin. That would be that would be a pretty fun um, ballot initiative to work on as well. So I totally. agree. I agree that um, I think people would really get excited about, you know, we talked about ways to get people excited about participating. They would get pretty excited about this if they had the power of the purse. And, you know, whether it was in through their tax return or through at the ballot box, they could put a percentage mark for this or that um, service or the our department. I think that'd be pretty awesome. I, I want to validate what Ellie was saying about state employees too. I, I've yet to meet a state employee where I'm just, I'm not like, this person is awesome. And not only are they smart and, and into public service, they um, are working really hard and very selfless, a, a true servant. And, and literally every every state employee I've met, I've felt the same way. I'm just like, these people are awesome. How, how did this person move to North Dakota? You could be anywhere. You came to North Dakota to help us do this stuff. This is great. And, and yet we shackle them with uh, the bureaucracy that comes from politicians and politics. And to answer uh, Norton's question, why, why we're doing all this stuff with un, un unaccounted for expenditures, it's moneyed interests that we're protecting, whether it's uh, foreign or domestic. So the reason that this common sense idea of a flat tax gets nowhere, even though, you know, I, I, I think most people would be totally in favor of it, is that if you talk to a Democrat or Republican at the national level, they're, they're going to be a moneyed interest uh, from the financial services that says, no, 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 we can't do this because, you know, how much money we make off preparing taxes. This is billions of dollars that you're going to take away potentially and automate. You're going to automate away our financial industry uh, to a degree. And we can't have that. Uh, this is, we do very important work. And so it, it, you, it has been estimated that under a true flat tax, there would be upwards of 200,000 accountants that would no longer have jobs in America. Right. And would we and, miss them? No, no, but they don't have any other skills either. I know so, they're stuck. So, you know, then they then they're going to become welfare cases. <laughs> well, maybe well, we... it, it, it's so easy to identify welfare cheats, <laughs> but so hard to identify corporate welfare cheats. Right, and corporate welfare cheats are way more a burden on my tax dollar than welfare cheats. For That's sure, all I'm saying. Well, I mean, the, the fact that this common sense idea can't get anywhere in national politics right now is it shows you where the duopoly is as far as controlling narratives and not letting good ideas come to the top. We, The marketplace of ideas is failing in, the, in, in, in a huge way because of the way the money, moneyed interests can prevent uh, common sense ideas from, from reaching to the top. Um, we're at our three, our almost at our three our, our, our three o'clock mark. Um, I think it'd be a good time to transition into uh, some checkout thoughts. Um, I'll kick it off. I got a direct question for Dustin. Dustin, I was walking around my neighborhood uh, the last couple of weeks and uh, somehow some somebody at the city cut down a bunch of trees on a boulevard that I walk pretty frequently. And we're talking like 50 trees that were between 15 to 20 feet tall, probably 10 to 15 years old, I would assume, not knowing much about trees. But these are some pretty cool trees. And now 50 of them are gone and there might be more that are gonna get cut down. Who at the city can I call and at least ask why, number one, and then maybe complain, number two? Who controls uh, whether a tree lives or dies in Bismarck? That is the uh, city forestry department. All right. The, uh, and, and trees on the boulevard is an interesting, it, it actually came up um, uh, at our last Renaissance Zone meeting, our downtown review committee meeting, uh, that you the, the the boulevard is in your name but you don't own it it the city actually owns your boulevard the trees are your responsibility but you're not allowed to do anything with them unless the city says you can 
So if, if a tree is hanging out over the, over your land and causing you trouble, you're not allowed to, to trim that without city permission, but the city can come in and cut the whole thing down without your permission. Right. That's messed up. That happened at my, at my yard. We had a storm come through and like a major limb of a tree was taken out. And so we we're like, ah, oh, we're going to call the city. And then they come and they cut the entire tree down. They didn't have to cut the whole tree. They you know, 70% of the tree was fine. Uh, but yeah, they just like, it's gone. And yeah, so I, I can complain the city forestry is what you're telling me. Yes. Yeah. And All and right. you can ask them, were they cut because of disease? Because there is uh, a high know. level of elm disease that's uh, going on right now. And uh, if you don't watch it, it spreads from tree to tree to tree. So if they cut it because of disease, then it does make sense. But if they cut, uh, you know, I, I can't imagine that they cut it just because it was hanging over the street. I, I'm no. sure it, it had to have been disease. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I just want to, I want to know the reason, number one, because yeah, it's like 50 trees. And these are some cool trees, guys. These ain't just uh, like cottonwoods just hanging out doing nothing. These are some pretty sweet trees. <laughs> Not to disparage cottonwoods. So uh, with that. Yeah, that's uh, disparaging. That's <laughs> mean. Well, I mean, there's so many cottonwoods. The cottonwoods do nothing. They just grow. They just... They got no I, character. I, I don't know. Apparently, Ryan is the leader of the anti-cottonwood movement. Yeah, I, I hear that. that that's I'm pretty... Part of the anti-cottonwood league. Yep. It's one of my side that's projects. That's Bad talk. Bad talk. <laughs> Any other checkout thoughts, group? One more. Dustin, yeah. I'm hoping for you. I'm counting on you. But I'm way old, so it ain't going to happen in my lifetime. So... <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, uh, I I don't know if it'll happen in my lifetime either. You know, <laughs> I I used to think that that my generation would be the one that would fix Social Security. I don't believe that anymore. And of course, my definition of fixing Social Security is probably different than a lot of people's, but uh, <laughs> you know, it's the way it goes. It, it's also a flat tax proposal that was proposed to Kent Conrad 15 years ago, but. He didn't want to run with it. Basically, it's we we you know how we we tax. There's a cap on how much you pay in the Social Security. We get rid of that. We also get rid of the uh, you know then we treat all income the same. So cap gains or dividends uh, also get hit with the Social Security tax. But if we do all that, we can drop down the rate. The total combined rate now is 15.3 percent. We could probably drop it down to six percent and still have enough money and, and save Social Security forever. But again, it's a matter of getting people to want more of their income tax at a lower rate. Good luck, Justin. Good luck as always. <laughs> <laughs> That's Ellie, all I got. Ellie, any final thoughts? Um, well, I just guess I look forward to seeing the conversation evolve and I'm not exactly sure what next steps are, but I think you guys might remember um, one of our prior conversations. I talked about workshop, having like some kind of workshop type activity where people actually go over what they want government to accomplish. Yeah. And then that would result in fleshing out like a hypothetical budget. I think like a simulation like that could be in service of these tax discussions. So 
I'll just uh, say that I'm down with that conversation continuing and evolving. Let's put that on the docket for a couple episodes from now, once we get past the session uh, and hopefully we have some end in sight for coronavirus restrictions, uh, preventing us from meeting in person. I think that's a great idea, Ellie. I think we need to figure out a way to an activity for people can learn kind of through doing and uh, uh, kind of jump off what Dustin's idea was for kind of direct appropriations from the people. That's a really cool idea. I really um, could get people excited about participating in a way that it's tangible to them, something that's transferable to their everyday life as well, as far as making a budget for, for them and their loved ones. Uh, so yeah, let's keep thinking about that. Um, I agree. And with that, everyone, this has been the No Name Podcast. You guys have a great rest of your Sunday. We'll talk soon. Thanks. 